welcome to the Woman by Definition podcast. I'm Kelly J. This episode, I'm talking to Marcus Evans. He trained and worked as a consultant psychotherapist at the Tavistock and Portman NHS Foundation Trust and has over 35 years experience in mental health as a practitioner, supervisor, lecturer and manager. He's also had a private practice in Beckenham since 1995. He was one of the founding members of the Fitzjohn Service for the Treatment of Patients with Severe and Enduring Mental Health Conditions uh, and or Personality Disorder in the Adult Department of the Tavistock. He's written and taught extensively on this subject and he's the author of Making Room for Madness in Mental Health, The Psychoanalytic Understanding of Psychotic Communications, uh, published by Karnak in the Tavistock series. Marcus recently came to prominence when he resigned as governor of the Tavistock uh, on the basis of being very unhappy with what happened to his colleagues when they raised concerns about what we were doing to children. Uh, and just as recently as yesterday, JK Rowling was tweeting Marcus's latest report, which is called Freedom to Think, the need for thorough assessment and treatment of gender dysphoric children. Marcus's experience is extensive. His knowledge is uh, phenomenal. Uh, and I think it's, it's something that we have to listen to. And his recommendations are brave and necessary. So I um, hope you enjoy. Here's Marcus Evans. Can't do. Okay. Uh, so hello, Marcus Evans, and welcome to the Woman by Definition podcast. Hi, Posey. Nice to be here. Yeah, lovely yeah. to see you. Uh, you are quite the man of the moment with J.K. Rowling choosing to uh, amplify your work. So congratulations. Well, it's just so important. I think she's really been a game changer because there's, there's lots of us that have been concerned about what's going on in this area. But we tend to be sort of sucking our sort of little groups. And obviously she's, you know, got massive... Sort of access to a much wider audience and so it's very important because what I found is the little pockets of people who are very concerned and know what's going on but actually the general population really are in the dark they don't they, mm. they think there's a nasty argument which they don't want to get involved in because they don't really understand what's going on and, and actually this whole thing needs opening up you know it needs much wider debate and discussion um, yeah I couldn't so. agree more yeah. So back in February of last year, the Times ran a piece about you, um, and in it you said that the Tavistock were creating a climate of fear and were dismissive of, of concerns raised by their own clinicians, and as a consequence of that, you resigned. Um, can you tell the pe for the people that don't know, haven't read about it, can you tell us a, a little bit more about that, that sort of episode, where it, where it came from, what was the final straw? Yeah, so I, I worked as a member of uh, the senior staff and management in the trust for 20 years. And then I, I retired from the NHS and I took up this uh, post as a governor um, at voluntary post. And the governors that sort of oversee the functioning of the trust. Is the trust doing what it should be doing? And the first thing that sort of lands on the governor's lap is this uh, issue about JIDs. And um, so there were two complaints. One was from a group of parents whose kids were being seen by JIDs. 
and the other was by a former governor called Dave Bell, who's probably the best known clinician in the Tavistock, colleague of mine. And both of them raised serious concerns about this controversial service, which I've obviously known about for a long time. The other thing was, is that um, 15 years ago, my wife um, had raised similar concerns about the service. And, and the concerns are that basically, that kids are not being properly assessed and their psychological state not being really evaluated and that they're being sort of fast tracked through for sort of um, biological treatment of what I see as a psychological condition. So this is a contentious area and my own experience of managing complaints as I used to is you, you, you've got to look at them seriously. You learn something about the area, you learn something about your service by taking them seriously. And, and my observation of the trust was that they were basically using the medical director's report because they then set up a medical director's report that this was being used to bury the problem. Right. Um, and they did it by uh basically um sort of um uh undermining dave bell and his credentials uh, which it's, is a it's just a, it's a bit staggering um because some of the things that were brought up by those clinicians were really quite frightening so uh accusations of homophobia in parents um that the autistic children weren't being looked after properly. So really quite serious concerns. How did the trust manage not to take them seriously? I think the trust is become, in terms of this area, it's highly politicized. You know, the, 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 the trust has a big contract with NHS England. All NHS trusts struggle at the moment to um, keep, above water in terms of their financial regulation and this is a um, uh, they've got one provider of mm. under 18 services so it's a big deal for the trust but the other fact is is, is the politicization that they're too closely aligned with um, the, the, the trans charities and they've become extremely influential um, so, so in a way, I think the trust thinks they're in control, but actually, I think the tail's wagging. The political tail is wagging the clinical dog. That's what's going on. And and that I could sort of accept um, as a member of public and a parent. I could sort of accept it if it wasn't permanently altering the bodies of children. And I mean, that's it, isn't it? It's it's political whims will come and go but those children once they've been altered um have no route back so that becomes a, a sticking point to me and i guess they must have to justify it both to themselves as well as as a funding sort of as a as a stream of revenue so there must be pieces of uh, research within the tavistock i guess that justify what they're doing no no the, the evidence for this whole area is is astoundingly poor poor as um carl hennigan basically overseas nice has said you know th th there's there's not enough evidence to justify this treatment the other thing that they say is they say well it's a pause on puberty but this is nonsense you know in terms of your development physiologically sociologically and psychologically mm. 
sorts of things going on in adolescence. Very disturbing. Kids get confused. They get anxious. You know, you, you're trying to work out, you know, your body's changing, your relationship with society's changing. And in a, in a way, you see, what I see is that, that it's very attractive to say we can sort of shut the whole thing down. All this disturbance, we can shut it down. By, and then, you know, we can stop all this pain and angst that I think is actually quite normal part of, of adolescent development. But the thing is, adolescents develop within a social context. All mm. these things are going on with the social context. So you can't take the kid out of their social context and put them in a sort of parking bay and then think, you know, you can restart the hormones. Well, the body doesn't work like that and the mind doesn't work like that. You get used to living without the angst. Um, and, who, you know, so... So th this idea of a sort of pause sounds very plausible, but actually what you're doing is basically saying you can't struggle your way through this. We're going to have to stop the whole process. And then, of course, people are on a conveyor belt, as you say. And, it and um, you know, 90% of kids that go on, to, on um, puberty blockers go on to, to cross-sex hormones, et cetera, et cetera. So you are sending them on a conveyor belt. Um, but I mean, my medical knowledge is basically having children, right? That's that's the extent of it, and being a female myself and understanding somewhat about my body. But I would say, from this position, the notion of pausing puberty just sounds ludicrous. So how it's justified by people who genuinely understand the mechanisms of the body, I just I don't, I really, really struggle to get where they're coming from. Well, there's a, there's a couple of things. One is, you see, I'm used to in psychiatry, when people get very disturbed, they, they fix on the idea, try to simplify, basically, we're complicated, all sorts of moving parts going on within us. And when you get overwhelmed, you try and fix on one, one idea that there's one problem with one solution. The next thing is things tend to become concrete, as if the body's the problem, not the mind. So you shift the problem from this complicated thing called growing up, with all its accompanying anxieties, and, and then also you shift the problem from the mind, with all its sort of disturbances and one thing, and you locate the problem in the body. But now that, that's, that's the kid presenting, the job of um, the mental health practitioners is to say, okay, we understand you're in a terrible state, but let's slow things down, try and understand what's going on for you um, and who you are, what you're struggling with, et cetera, et cetera. You know, we just take time, say no, no dramatic decisions. But as you say, the problem is the moment you start to make medical interventions that start to change the body and the mind, you're basically moving that kid on up on a sort of another path. Mm. And as we say, in terms of the long-term outcomes, there's, nobody's got any idea where this leads. Yeah. This is a new cohort. These, these mainly 90% girls transitioning to boys. It's a completely new cohort. And we don't know what the outcome is going to be. There's no, there's no evidence. Um, I just, I, I don't know. I, I think my role as a parent is to nurture and protect my children. Um, yeah. And I really just can't imagine being taken down a path um, in which I would in inflict that sort of permanent alteration. It just, I mean, I barely even gave them cowpaw because I'm a bit weird. 
about about medicines. But um, yeah, Look, I just there's, there's another there's another issue that comes into play here. You know, you go into medicine because you want to stop people in pain, but you, you've got to think about the long term consequences. So I compare it with the opioid problem. If people continually give out pills because people are in pain, the doctor, the patient wants the pain removed, the doctor wants to remove the pain, you end up with long-term damage. So, so, you know, there's been a shift from the sort of patriarchal medic, you know, acting as the gatekeeper to the patient. And there's much more of a sort of democratic relationship now. And that's a good thing. But the problem is it's also shifted into the sort of the, the customer and the service provider. Now, that, that's not a good medical model because, you know, we're not talking about buying sofas here and that medics and the medical services have got a job to say, OK, we understand you're in pain. We want to help you with that. But, you know, sometimes, you know, if you take a sort of shortcut in terms of attending to the pain, these things have got long-term consequences. Mm. So mm. I think there's a whole, there's another issue about the relationship between patients and, and people in the medical profession. There's been a change. Mm. And, and there are some problems with this change. Um, yeah. Although, you know. I mean, you go, um, going back a step to what you said about um, in psychiatry, if someone fixes on a problem, fixates on a, a particular part of their body or whatever they think that then becomes that one thing will solve everything. Um, the way that people talk about gender dysphoria now, it's almost like they are a new category of human and it hasn't really, it's not really born out of trauma or, and I can talk, I'm talking about modern day trauma, which some, which is not recognizable to the sort of trauma we would have talked about 20 years ago, but sort of manifestations of lack of resilience in younger people and, and trauma, you know, still manifests and, and shows as trauma. But this switch in language that sort of gender dysphoria is no longer a mental health issue and a dysphoria falling under the, the range of dysphoria is really dangerous and that needs to be unraveled somehow how do you think that sort of thing is achieved well the first point is you're you're right i mean you know i've been in psychiatry for 40 years you know people don't like to think of it i think of it as a bit of a science actually it's, it's a bit of a fashion <laughs> there are fashions and um uh for instance years ago the, the, the diagnosis of depression was very small, very small number of people were diagnosed with depression. As the MAOIs and antidepressants came in, the diagnosis of depression has gone up exponentially. So that, you know, the, you know, diagnoses are used to capture people with all sorts of problems. And, and as you say, the moment you've got that diagnosis and then patients tend to identify with, well, this is what I want. And then you sort of get this migration into the area. Actually, mm. it doesn't tell you a lot about the fact that people are very individual and they're suffering from all sorts of different things. Um, but they, they tend to want to, they're sort of moving towards the same diagnosis with the same sort of outcome. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. So this, is, this is not unusual. It happens a lot. It happens with ADHD and autism, you know, is now a much broader idea of who's autistic than, than say, 20 years ago. Um, 
So, sorry, Posey, what was your original question? I've, I've, I've sort of lost well, I just wonder how we undo that, how yeah, we sort yeah, of, yeah. how we get back to yeah. the, the actual yeah. diagnosis meaning yeah. something. Yeah. Yeah, well, I, I mean, the, the, again, the politicisation of the whole area that we're seeing all the time, which is the closing down of discussion, the lack of research, and now attempts to take gender dysphoria out of DSM and ICD, see, as if to say, it, it's not a psychological problem. Well, well, I mean, of course it's a psychological problem. It's, it's what your else mind is it? That tells you <laughs> you're in the wrong body. It's mm. nothing else. Mm. Um, you know, uh, it, it's it's your mind interfering with you know with your perception of yourself and and becoming unhappy with your natal body. Mm. But again, it's all part of normal development. We're all you know we've all got to sort of come to terms with who we are warts and all and as we move into middle age you, you, <laughs> you have to do more of that you know but even as an adolescent there's bits you don't like you've got a bit of a bulbous nose and my ears are a bit sticky outy and I wish they weren't but there we are because otherwise I would look like Sting and you know life would be much better but I have to put up <laughs> with who I am and so does everybody else <laughs> Yeah, I agree. I had, um, I mean, I didn't have terrible issues as a, as a teenager, but it took me until I was about 36 to wear a skirt. I mean, you know, just, I absolutely hated, still don't particularly like my legs, but then I think they work. They take me from A to B. I can, I can deal with that. <laughs> absolutely, but I'm, yeah. You know, I'm sure if I'd fixated on something else yeah. growing up, uh, yeah. you know, anything could have happened. Yeah. Um, so, now, you've recently um, published a report called Freedom to Think, the need for thorough assessment and treatment of gender dysphoric children. Um, what, I'm assuming the report is about your sort of build-up of your knowledge over, over this time. Can we start with something really simple? What is gender dysphoria? Gender dysphoria is just unhappiness with your um with your body with your with your your sex body um, that, that's what it is dysphoria is an unhappiness basically. Mm. and do you think if we'd never labeled it there'd be so many children with it um well I I, i'm not sure i mean as i say I, I i just think that it's symptomatic of other things you know we we We've got the job of coming to terms with the way we are and the way the world is. That's part of the developmental process. And it's a painful process because, you know, at one stage I thought I was the best rugby fullback in the, in the country. Unfortunately, the bloke who picked the England rugby team didn't agree with me. Now, I've got to come to terms with the fact that one of us is wrong. You know, <laughs> I think it happened to be him. But, but the thing is, is that... Um, you know, I don't control the world, you know, and, and we're in a, we're in a, we're in a relationship with um, sort of reality where reality is always, you know, we've got our perception and then we've got the way the world sees us. So you're, you're involved in this process of continually checking out your perceptions mm. against the external world. I think this this sort of thing of self ID, you know, that I'll just define myself as X, as if there isn't a dialogue with society, and there, there is, and sometimes we don't like it, sometimes we disagree, but but um, 
to sort of act as if you can just change the world by just changing your perceptions. This is, this is the basis of psychosis. You know, the psychotic patient says, I'm Henry VIII, and you say, no, you can't be. You've only been married once. And, you know, and I'll just say, well, I, but I am. You know, because, you know, the, the feedback from the external world is that that's not reality, but you just move into a state. You say, well, I've just invented a whole view of myself, which I call my delusion, and I'm fixed with that. I don't, I don't really need to sort of check that out with external reality or with the, my physical reality and just define myself. But that, that's, that's a sort of illusion or delusion. It's, it's basically a psychotic process. Mm. Um, okay, so in your report, you talk about affirmation therapy and the um, affirmative approach to so-called gender dysphoria. What is affirmation therapy and how long has that been something that's, that's been insisted upon? Well, again, I'm going to come, I'm going to repeat myself. This is the sort of politicization. There's no research to say that affirmation is the correct way of dealing with gender dysphoria. You know, the, um, the old, uh, the, the most um, gender clinics adopted a, uh, what's called watchful waiting for which there is an evidence base. Um, and Ken Zucker, who's probably the, the heavyweight researcher in this area, said that 90% of kids will, um, you know, come out of their gender dysphoria as a sort of part of a natural process if they're supported. But suddenly this new approach comes in and uh, no one knows how it happens, but it's sort of politically influenced, as I say, without, re without research. And it, it's not, you know... If I just compare it with an anorexic, anorexic comes to see you and says, well, I think food is poison. I don't want to eat food. I don't automatically affirm their beliefs. My job is to say, okay, well, look, that's a bit of a problem because if you don't eat, you're going to die. But we're not going to get into an argument about that. What I'm really interested in is your psychotherapist is trying to understand how you've come to that particular view. Mm. And what you think it's going to do for you and and how can we sort of how can i interest you in the problem of adopting that belief system i'm interested in people's motives and how they get fixed in a particular way of thinking my job is not to convert them into marcus evans's view of how they should be my job is um is to understand who they are and what they're struggling with and how they've come to this, um, you know, sort of quite damaging solution in terms of anorexia, because it's, it's, it's psychiatry's biggest killer, anorexia. Right. Yeah. Um, so anorexia, clearly not an affirmation approach there. No. Is no. there any other um, sort of psych psychiatric um, condition where you would affirm, or is this brand new just for this area? No, 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 I mean, you, you're empathic. The person says, this is how they feel. I'm not gonna get into an argument with the psychotic mm. guy who thinks he says he's Henry VIII. I'm not gonna argue with him. No, I'm empathic. Okay, that's how you feel you are, and it's very irritating that the rest of the world doesn't agree with you. 
but I'm trying to find ways of understanding how they've come to that sort of belief and sort of open their minds up to different ways of seeing things. That's my job. Um, so no, I, 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 don't, I don't affirm anyone, but nor do I get into unnecessary, unfruitful arguments. It's, it's trying to look at things from different points of view. That's my job. Mm. Um, I recently watched a very young woman so she was 16 I think she's about 26 now so 16 she just had her breast removed there was other I mean it was a very harrowing scene so there was her in the room taking off the bandages there was a nurse there didn't even have her hair back which may be another issue uh there was an uh, an older uh so-called trans man in the room saying how in incredibly celebratory this whole thing was and then fast forward to 10 years later that same woman still has body hatred she's now going to a transgender affirmation counselor because she found many counselors who then wanted to talk about why she transitioned in the first place but she didn't want to talk about that and she's now been labeled as having um, internalized transphobia about her post-surgical body. I mean, how are these people practicing? The thing is, see, the thing is, is to face the damage that she's, she's done in the interest of trying to make something better. And in my view, the collusion with the with the medics you know what are you faced with you, you know how do you face that so um it's it's, it's very painful you know and um uh it's it's okay you know we 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 all you know do damage to ourselves and our loved ones and we do it all the time and then we you know we make amends and we repair after an argument you sort of Oh God, I'm sorry about that. I'm, you know, but when you do something physical that is irreversible, you, you've now got a problem because you know you've got to come to terms with the fact that you and others might have done something. So, so then you look for someone who's going to absolutely convince you in in this sort of sort of very fixed and narrow way. You were completely right and dismiss all the doubts and questions. See now, again, you're going down a sort of rabbit hole because, I mean, one of the things that is said often, um, you know, is with, with the kids come and they're, they're absolutely certain. That's a problem. You, you, you know, we don't live in a world of complete certainty about our sort of emotional states. We, our doubts, our questions and anxieties are necessary. It's what keeps us sane. And especially with big decisions which have got enormous implications, you know, you sweat over them, you have headaches, you've got your worries. And the absence of worry is, you know, that's a problem. Mm -hmm. It's not something to be heralded, it isn't this marvellous. Now, it seems to me that, that, that this um, therapist is trying to sort of indoctrinate the patient into saying there, is, there are no problems. See. It's all to do with your not accepting yourself. But, but you know, uh, you, you must get rid of all these doubts and anxieties. But this is a very abnormal state. It's like brainwashing. 
Um, yeah. It's just so frightening. It's so frightening. I mean, there's, there's, you can look under the, is it BPAS? Um, and there are plenty of gender affirmation counselors. I just, I just can't believe any organization would, would even have that as a thing. Whatever you say you are, we will support you and say, yes, you are is quite incredible to somebody from the outside. It cuts across the fact my job is to, as I've you know, said many times, is, is, you know, is to be curious, interested about who this person is and wary about fixed beliefs in, in the psychological sphere. The, these are things that you hang on to when you feel there's too much chaos and anxiety. I understand that. But to to try and remove yourself and get some sort of fixed belief, you know, it's it's mental flexibility is very important. You know, we mm. we've got to be prepared to look at things from different points of view and and relinquish certain beliefs as we go along and while we adopt new ways of thinking. That's part of a mature person, you know, living in a mature life, you know, not rigid fixed states of mind um wow i might not share that view with my husband uh we'll keep that a secret (laughs) um so another thing you discuss in your report is the memorandum of understanding on of conversion um so this is a bit of a hot topic because um people on uh one side of the debate will talk about the homophobia being prevalent in the parents of these children and therefore Transitioning, transitioning children or taking them on that route is the ultimate in uh, gay conversion therapy. Um, what is the memorandum of understanding on of conversion? Well, basically, it's, it, it looks like a, a quite benign document. But if you look at it in some detail, there's a problem in it, which is basically you say, if someone comes and says to you they've got a problem with their sexuality, then you can be curious about that as a therapist and you can explore that but if they come along and they say I've got absolutely no no problem with wishing to transition at all then you're discouraged from looking into that area now again I'm I'm not hamstrung in any other area in terms of if someone comes along and says I've got no problems with my sexuality I said well you're the first person ever born who has no problem with sex or one thing like that. everybody's got you know and I'm not trying to exaggerate I'm just saying and why would you state that so categorically unless it's a sort of area that can't be touched so anybody who says you know I, I don't want I want I want you to investigate my mind and help me think about things but you're not allowed to touch my religion or my sexuality I think well but why not you know why so defensive but the memorandum discourages people from that sort of investigation as if I would be then trying to convert people to my way of thinking. Again, you've got this model of the patriarchal psychotherapist who sort of wants everybody to be heterosexual and one thing like that. That's not what it's about. People are going to make all sorts of decisions and choices about their sexuality and their, you know, and their identity. You're not going to be controlled by me, but my job is to exam, be free to examine and explore things mm. and not to be told by my professional body that I'm transgressing, 
transgressing if I'm wanting to think about these things. And I'm not just taking from the patient. The patient says, you can't touch this. I think, hmm, that's interesting. What's that about, you know? Quite a bizarre thing to do to somebody in your line of work. You can't talk about that. Like, that's, yeah. surely that's, that's your job. That is my job. That is my job as a psychoanalyst. And, you know, irritatingly, it's to think about everything. You know, that's why people are wary of talking to people like me, you know, because things get interpreted and whatever. Sometimes. But anyway, I'm, I'm sort of going to the caricature. But yeah, absolutely. Freedom to think. Wow. And the memorandum, I think, is, is very inhibiting. The other thing that I have to say is that, that, that a lot of these kids are very fixed. They're very difficult. It's a very difficult area. It's not easy. And that often it's quite junior people with not a lot of training. This is a bit of a generalisation. And that they may rely more on the manual or what the policy says in a sort of concrete way, as you do when you sort of are faced with a difficult situation that you don't feel confident in, in examining or exploring. And um, so I think the memorandum has got very concretely interpreted as this right. is a no-go area. So what you find is a lot of people just won't touch kids who want to transition. They just get moved on to specialist services, which is right. very unhelpful. Very unhelpful, because often they're miles away and then people try and sort of circumvent the, the NHS uh, JIDs, which I assume is better than the private, even if it's not remotely perfect in itself. Well, my, my starting point would be, I'm interested in the kid as a whole. See, mm. This is another thing about the Tavistock so upsetting. The whole history of the Tavistock is to do with uh, developmental psychology and systems thinking, which you would think would be ideal um, sort of theoretical structures in which to try and understand the kid that you're presented with. And actually is a sort of, the, the JID service a, a operates in a silo where they don't have any ties to their sort of parental ideologies or, or whatever. They're, they're, they're sort of like these new service, a bit like the idea of a kid saying, I can reinvent myself. I don't like the generic genetic inheritance that I was given. I just recreate myself. And um, yeah, and so, but actually one wants to sort of think, you know, about what's going on in the family, what's going on developmentally with the kid, you know, um, again, it's another sort of embargo, which is very characteristic of this area, things you're not allowed to think about and use. Yeah. Insane. Um, you also mentioned which I think uh, they often get ignored uh, in the wider context. And that's the children with more complex um, uh, histories. So yeah. uh, either trauma or uh, struggling with internalized homophobia or autism. Yeah. Um, how, how do those things overlap? And how can you ever give yeah. a diagnosis about one without really reviewing all the others? Well, again, very, very odd. I mean, because you know, autistic thinking, you know, tends to be sort of black and white. There's a problem with dealing with complex emotions. So, you know, that group, that mental state fits in very nicely with the sort of control that I think this sort of medical intervention offers. We're going to 
you know, shut the body down. It's, you know, there's all sorts of things going on which are out of your control and leading you into areas which you feel maybe uncomfortable or confusing. And so, you know, the, now, so the fact that loads of kids are on the autistic spectrum, it absolutely fits with what the sort of trans model offers in a very unhelpful way. So it's, it's completely related. And that is going back to why I think the generic services are so important because you can't divide kids up. You can't say that's something called your gender and that's something called your autistic mind. You know, we, we're, we're sort of, our, our personality and our minds are sort of all sorts of moving parts, dynamically related to one another. And um, you, you, can't, you can't slice people up like a surgeon, say, well, there's the liver and there's the heart. The, the mind doesn't function like that. No. All these things are, inex you know, are completely um, related to one another. Mm. Um, and that, yeah. that's why I think the, the movement from the generic services to specialist services, which tend to be very narrowly focused, is very unhelpful. Yeah, it's so weird because for me, it's not just all the bits of your personality, but, you know, my personality is somewhat dependent on my body. And yes, how I yes. I'm interacting yes. in the in yes. the world as like a five yes. foot one woman. Yes. Yeah. No, and that that's you know I emphasised in terms of talking about the psychotic patient, you know, the relationship with the external world in the delusion that they there is no relationship with the external world. But of course, you know who we are. We are a body. Mm. We we are. We can't. We might not like it, but we. We've got to learn to come to terms with it. We've got to learn to, come, to live with it. And, and our reality, reality is partly a physical reality. Absolutely. So I just, I, sometimes when I start thinking about this stuff, it just, you just sort of go round in a circle and then you go, oh, but like the word gender, for example, is just, I find it a really um, destructive word when it comes to dealing with reality because it doesn't, you know, I'm a female in a female body with a female brain and a female experience and no other bits of gender or interpretation or anything like that is going to change or alter those facts. You know, I can't yeah. escape being female. Even if I'm blokey, I can't escape yeah. being female. Yeah. And, and you know, we, we'd normally, you know, we go along with the idea that one's trying you know, you sort of hate some aspect of yourself. You sort of think, as a parent, as a mental health practitioner, you think, well, that's not, that, that, you know, that's not great. And we certainly wouldn't go, well, if you could get rid of the hated part. I mean, we, we'd all like to do that, but actually you, you can't get rid of the hated part. You know, we, we've got to, as I say, repeating myself, we've got to come to terms with who we are. Mm. Not... Um, in this cosmetic way changing unit now having said all that you know um that some people will go on to transition because that's the compromise that's going to work for them and i don't want to be heard to be saying nobody should transition i i i don't you know some people will transition and that's the best way they find of living their life and mm. uh, what I do think is important is that that before that happens, there should be a thorough, shouldn't happen for under 18s as used to be the law. Um, no medical treatment for under 18s. 
and and once beyond 18 i still think people should go through a sort of thorough process of psychological evaluation as, as i think i said in the colette paper you know years ago used to be told that everybody who had gen, uh, gender reassignment surgery made a help uh, a good transition now i knew that was rubbish because i used to see people in king's casualty who've been you know they often had complex problems they believed this would be the solution they had gender reassignment surgery and then they wake up the next day and they still got the same problems and then they become suicidal now it wasn't a massive number because the numbers are very small in those days mm. but there was you know in the psychiatric system and you know in casualty you would see uh, you know a steady stream of people for whom um gender reassignment surgery had not worked out um uh, now as i say now we've got this completely different cohort um the numbers are much bigger and a much and a very different profile yeah um, so you know even more need for thorough investigation um, with yeah. those people that um regretted it is there like clearly the benefit of hindsight is always a wonderful thing um when we dig into their histories could we have ever known that, that the transition wasn't going to work for them is there is there some stuff that that has sort of has become apparent that maybe it could have been spotted or is it just random um well i think there's certain things that that um i think the connection's a bit can you hear me I can hear you. Yeah, I think yeah. it's. I, I've got yeah, quite I mean, a good I think I think one of the things that 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 you're up against is that when people are in a sort of in an upset state, that you know, that the idea of a concrete solution is very attractive. So when the medication's on the table and you've got to come along and talk to Marcus Evans, who's just going to talk about things, and they go, well the pills will actually change something physically. So, so it's, it's quite hard to hold the line clinically and say, okay, you may decide in the future that this is what you're gonna do. But in the meantime, we're gonna go through a very thorough process. And the, some of the things that can be sort of picked up, it used to be the case, so for instance, I'm not sure what the situation is. If you had a major mental illness, that you were discouraged from transitioning. I saw a chap who, had, who was psychotic. He had a um, diagnosis of paranoid schizophrenia. No history of believing that um, he was female. And then he, but he had a sort of, he, he got worried about his own violence when he became ill, he could lash out, but he was concerned about that. And I think he developed a fixed idea that if he was no longer uh, a man, you know, then that would get rid of his violence, as if the sort of you know, violence was just associated with his uh, male physical characteristics. If they were removed, the problem would be removed. And, and I um, had a dialogue with Charing Cross about this. I was very worried that, because, you know, so if, if that's the psychological idea, then he, and then he still gets violent with people who he needs in his life, you know, then he's going to get this crushing depression. And, um, but the problem was, is that 
I was offering psychological therapy and insights. Um, um, the gender reassignment surgery was offering this powerful intervention. And he wanted a powerful intervention to, to solve the problem of his powerful psychological problem. You see what I mean? All I'm going to do is talk. So, you know, um, one's, one needs, I think, so they asked, they asked this, I was asked the other day about um, if, if the, um, the Gender Re Recognition Act, if we just stick to how it is at the moment, you've got to live for two years, et cetera, et cetera. And I absolutely agreed with that because that then gives me a bit of time to work with the individual psychologically because there can't be any physical intervention. Um, just, you see, just thinking about the mind, the more disturbance you've got in the mind, the more there is a tendency to look for powerful cures. Right. And that is surgery and medicine. And so it's hard to, um, without a support of legal frameworks, it's hard to hold the line psychologically. I, I've that's all clear. But um, yeah, the, the law and the clinical need should go together. That's my view. Yeah. Well, um, what age or where do you think people are when sort of generally, it's going to be too difficult a question, I think, but when generally we're settled as, as who we are, because I've read some of Amanda Jane Blackmore's work and she talks about like your mid twenties and for this generation, yeah. maybe even yeah. later because adolescent yeah. ends when certain other things in your life happens. Yeah. So, you know, if we were to put a, a number on it, are we talking yeah. 25, 23? Yeah. I think, I think, I mean, people vary, don't they? Some people, are, you know, you, you talk to some youngsters and you think, you know, they're, they're more mature than you are, but, um, you know, but. Speak but, for yourself, yeah. Marcus. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, for, but most people, I think, yeah, adolescence sort of settles down when you're about 25, something like mm. that. Mm. Um, and, and as you say, because of social changes, actually it's getting later and later, but. I, I, you know, I, I, I think I would be very cautious about the under 25s, but I, I think I'd go for the legal framework. You know, you and it, you know, it's it's old as many people say, isn't it? You, 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 you've got to be 18 before you can have a tattoo and do various different things, but you can interfere with your body's development. I, I think nobody should be having medical treatment without, let's say, a family without an um, agreement of a family court judge. I think that's a proviso I would put. All the evidence presented to a, a judge. Even that I'm slightly uncomfortable about, but I'd, I'd stick to 18 and then I'd be cautious until 25. Um, yeah. I just, I find it staggering that we ever agreed to do these things to kids especially so we know that the um many i'm probably going to say something wrong now and look really silly but uh many psychiatric conditions come about through adolescence don't they so in the teenage years that's when they first yeah. come out so all these children getting diagnosed with gender dysphoria at like seven and eight way before other psychiatric conditions are noted are uh, it's it's quite insane 
Oh, that's a really bad word to use to a psychiatrist. I'm I, sorry. So, so, so the thing is, so I used to manage the adolescent service for a period of time, as long as, as well as the adult service. And there's a, there's a good tradition. A lot of psychoanalysts are against diagnosis because it, you know, it, it tends to be too general. I, I like diagnosis as a sort of ballpark, ballpark thing. You know, you've got to know what sort of land you're in, whether you're neurotic or basically psychotic but it's limited in psychiatric terms and and applying a sort of medical model in in terms of psychiatry doesn't really work but then the problem becomes more complex when you're looking at adolescence with adolescence the some of the, the presentations are very odd and bizarre and behaviors are odd and bizarre and people you know, they, they might think this is the differential diagnosis, but people quite rightly are very reluctant to pin a diagnosis on, you know, maybe psychotic-y types of features and acting out type of features. But you're not going to go, that's a personality disorder, this person is psychotic. You, the, people are, are rightly reluctant. And then all of a sudden, we become very certain about this particular area and once again it's the political influence because it doesn't happen you know you, you know kids kids are troubled they're struggling with this that and the other and there are the differential diagnosis but we don't really know how this story is going to unfold is this someone who's going to develop paranoid schizophrenia or both personality disorder we don't know and it's quite right not to label them why this is an exemption again is, is very strange Mm. It really is. Well, I think parents often come to the service with a ready-made diagnosis that they've already given their child. Um, so let's talk about these lobbying groups, which I think you and I... Just, just one thing about that, Posey, because of course soon I get approached by all sorts of parents who, who are not like that, really worried. You know, my daughter is a bit on the autistic spectrum. She finds, you know there I am now diagnosing, let's say she finds social situations a bit difficult and suddenly she went to see a counsellor and now she's, she wants to transition. Mm. And the parents are terrified. They're felt to be looked upon as sort of bigoted, um, controlling parents who are not just affirming. But basically, quite rightly, they don't trust the services and they're right not to. And, you know, we, I wouldn't say we're inundated, but we have a steady stream of quite measured, worried parents phoning up saying, who, who do I send my kid to? Because I, I don't trust the, the statutory services. So no, and I, I don't blame them at all. No, no, um, so obviously you and I are great Sorry. cheerleaders for the um, lobbying groups that have... Uh, cut right into most of our health uh, services who are in our police, in our courts, in our schools, everywhere. Um, when did they get their grips on the Tavistock? Well, um, as I say, you know, Sue, um, and, and there was an investigation, I think, in 2005, and um, she noted the, how close the gender identity service was was with um, some of the um, 
some of the charities. And again, this is very unusual. I mean, you know, in the adult department, you have a relationship with the charity. Sometimes it's very helpful, but they, they, you know, they're not involved in policy making. You know, you, you've got to be completely independent. Not, you know, in terms of my assessment for the for the setting up a structure in mm. which I'm assessing my patients. I, you know, you've got to be independent. Um, and sometimes, you know, to, so to have a sort of charity involved in the sort of policy making or description of the service is very odd. Um, I mean, we say odd um, because I guess that's a polite way of saying it. It seems quite sinister that it, they have. It shouldn't. It shouldn't be happening. You know, when the, if if and particularly if if the the charities have got a particular drum that they're beating. You know, they've got a particular sort of ideology and drive. And this interferes with the, what I'm describing as the sort of independence of mind that you need in order to sort of assess things properly. You, need to, mm. you don't need political interference. It's just not helpful. Um, it's, it's almost like these lobby groups are, have got expertise that people that have been in the field... The, the medics and the psychiatrists that have been in the field don't have and somehow need to outsource their collective responsibility to these lobby groups. Well, I got one, I get, uh, I get the odd, um, you know, quite critical um, thing on Twitter and whatever. And one bloke said, who is this guy Evans? What, does he know what he's talking about? <laughs> <laughs> and what are his credentials? And I then, you know, I found myself I don't usually respond, but sort of listing 40 years, psychoanalyst, managed <laughs> service here, da, 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 taught, teach, you know, all around Europe and, you know, supervise people in Japan and South Africa and, you know. Um. It makes me laugh about these opponents, right? So... I can I understand the people that are very very invested, um, and they will be a range and spectrum of different people that are very invested in um, what I would term transgender ideology, uh, and I, I get that. And it doesn't really matter what you say, what evidence you present, or whatever. The dogmatic the dogmatic held belief is is going to be fixed. But the people that are a little bit in the middle, I'm thinking, what did they think Marcus Evans is trying to gain by saying? Can we just look again at this issue, which is permanently altering the bodies of, of children? I mean, it can only come from a good place, right? Well, I, I've, I mean, if you'd have told me 18 months ago, you know, I was going to be involved in this area, I wouldn't have believed it. I've got no, you know, I was outspoken as a manager. I was trying to stand up for my services. I was known for doing that, but I've never been involved in anything like this. Um, but I'm just so appalled by what I think is a sort of devalued sort of mental health practice. You know, I'm, I'm proud of being an analyst. I was proud of being a psychiatric nurse, you know, and, uh, you know, there, there are problems with services and one thing or another. And, and I'm, you know, critical of some of the things that have gone on, but, but basically, as a as a practitioner, I'm extremely proud. And this is a devalued form of mental health practice. It's just mm. you know, shortcuts and 
lazy thinking. It's appalling. And the fact that it's gone on in the Tavistock, which is the place that trained me and that I've been proud to work in, you know, is, is appalling. I mean, even from a budget point of view, so I'm controlling, the, I've, I'm nice and I'm controlling the budgets and I'm making decisions. You know, we've seen some of the news stories about uh, certain breast cancer drugs that we couldn't really afford as a health service. And I'm looking at these kids at 11 and they go on to become lifelong medical patients, which as an NHS, we are going to have to pay for. That's week in, week out drugs and potentially surgeries but let's just say it's just the hormones and the puberty blockers or what i can do is i can invest really good high quality therapy for that child for maybe three years maybe five surely that's cheaper right mm, yeah and as well you know the fact is is becoming trans is, is as you indicate this is not an easy option it's expensive medically, but it's not, as, as you see, in terms of the mental health of these kids that are transitioned. It, this is not an easy you know, option. It's, it's, it's difficult. Mm. Um, and, I think uh, I, mentioned to, uh, I mentioned to Sue before, or it might have been Mark, um, it might have been Will. Um, you see these, I, I see a girl, I know to be a girl, she is a girl, and... Um, she now identifies as a boy and I can't imagine the anxiety from the moment you leave the house or even in your own home if you're arguing with a younger sibling who will just probably say every now and again because my kids say the most awful things to each other they must say you're a girl right they must do that in their in their home environments yeah. she must worry on a daily basis that someone at school a teacher someone's going to look at her where where's she going to the toilet I mean that sort of weight of every minute by minute anxiety i can't imagine how how she bears it well it's you know it's called passing isn't it and passing the test of whether you get you you, you convince everybody that you you're the gender that you want to be i mean yeah it's a constant persecution and and i think again it's it's related to the fact that you see in a sense you know someone somewhere that you're natally the, the sex that you were born you know you can't get rid of that now i think some of these arguments with mispronouning and dead naming are connected to the fact that all the time you're persecuted by, by this idea that you know that you're you're trying to carry something off um and in a sense, the, the, the less, you know, some, you know you, some people come to terms with it and they say, this is how it is. And, and if I can pass, then that's good. And I feel comfortable with it. But I know, you know, I'm a, I'm a man in a woman's body you know, and I've come to terms with that. But this is how I can live a life. Yeah. And, and th there's a tolerance within themselves. And then they tend to be more tolerant with others. But if you're intolerant, you, you're constantly persecuted by the fact that someone may look at you in a certain way and they think, they know, they know, you know, and, and, and then you get into these arguments about you use the wrong name because all the time they're in a persecuted world. Now, if you was talking to, you, you asked me before about how you would sort of 
you know, assess, you, you, you know, it's something to do with someone who's absolutely determined they can't live in the natal, as the natal sex as they were born. And this is the solution. But, but I think something about um, not having this tyrannical need to control everything, because, because if that's what's driving you, that, that just leads to a persecuted world. Because as I say, you you can't get rid of innate knowledge. So forcing others to accept is basically an admission that that you don't you don't pass to yourself. So that's why you externalise the sort of the resentment right. and anger that other people have to pretend they see. That's you right. As, you talked yeah. about internal homophobia, sort of internal hatred of your natal sex, which then gets enacted with someone else when they say you know hey mate or whatever and then you go nuts because you think oh god you know they're, they're, they're denying my reality because actually what's been attacked is your whole construct your picture of yourself has now been decimated by the fact someone's contradicted you you know, again, what a fragile mental state to live in because you know, we're, we're contradicted all, all, all the time. People say mm. things we don't like and, well, you know, that's life. People say a lot of things that I don't like <laughs> all the time. Yes. Um, so You're very you... tolerant though, Posey. <laughs> <laughs> so, fast forward. So here we are. So I've got a couple more questions. Are you hopeful, Marcus, that we are beginning to unravel some of this stuff well i think i think the this has got in this whole area has got into the sort of political system and it's taking a long time i mean it's like a tanker these things aren't they these beliefs that get into the culture it doesn't it's not easy to to turn them around um but yeah i i i am hopeful just recently you know i think the case um you know, is extremely important. Um, you, know, the fact that the, the, you know, Kira Bell mm. and um, and Sue Mother A. You know, I think that's very important. I also think the fact that, that um, the British um, Journal of Psychiatry, you know, published these two papers, mine and the research paper. I think because a lot of psychiatrists know that you know, we're out of kilter in this area. There's something very wrong in this area. So mm. I think the editorial board of, of, um, uh, of that journal have wanted to publish it. I, d I didn't know that the two papers were going to be published together. Is so. that the Susan Bewley and Richard Bing paper? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So you've got mine, which is a sort of clinical piece alongside um, a bunch of researchers and the two papers go very nicely together. Um, so, you know, um and then you know hopefully we're going to get some news about the gender recognition act which is the government isn't going to change the gender recognition act so i think th these things start to happen and and also i've got to say jk rowling you know i mean the fact that she's feels strongly enough about this to get involved has been enormously important because she just gets to an audience as i said at the beginning that, that the rest of us don't get to and it, mm. it's, it's very important and and like you said to me I mean you don't she doesn't have to do this and she's got a hell of a kicking yeah you know, 
and um, but it's so important that she has um, and it has allowed other people then to get involved and to speak out and so yeah I think there are some signs you know that you might think things are changing a bit and I hope that, that gathers a bit of steam yeah me too well on that note uh, on behalf of all of us trying to stop this madness um thank you both to you and uh, your wife and thank you very much for talking to me today thanks very much thanks for having me Tosi. you're welcome right i'll pause well in. i have to say i've thoroughly enjoyed that uh marcus and his wife sue are bringing out a book uh, very shortly and susan evans is also involved in the case of kira bell who is fighting back against the NHS and what they allowed her and enabled her to do when she was just a child to her body. If you enjoyed this, please don't forget to like, share and subscribe. And I would be absolutely delighted if you would leave a review. I am told all of these things do some sort of magic to algorithms. I have no idea what. Okay, see you next episode. Bye.